Well, this hour, we're talking about a move today by the province of British Columbia, actually a move by the federal government to allow the province of British Columbia to decriminalize possession of small amounts of some illicit drugs starting next year, January 31st, to be precise, for a three-year period. It's an exemption uh, from Ottawa to federal drug laws. So Canadians 18 years and older will be able to possess up to a cumulative 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, or MDMA ecstasy within BC. The province had asked for 4.5 grams, uh, but it's 2.5. Police will not confiscate the drugs. The production, trafficking, and exportation of these drugs will, of course, still remain illegal. Um, It is a big shift, and it is something that a lot of experts, even the uh, Police Chiefs Association, have been calling for for a while because there is a recognition uh, that solutions that were in place in the past are not working, uh, and that the stigma that goes along with, uh, with the criminality of small amounts of drugs, possession of, is also not working. In fact, if anything, it's driving people into hiding. And uh, as we know from the horrific statistics, they're dying there. Um, 10,000 people in British Columbia alone from 2016 uh, have died of toxic drug overdoses. So it is a crisis. We've known it's been a crisis now for quite a while. We declared a public health emergency in this province in 2016. If anything, during the pandemic, it got worse. So the idea is now it's time to time to find some new solutions to try and fix this because it's not getting better. Um, the mental health and addictions minister, Carolyn Bennett, the federal one, explained the decision this way today. This is not legalization. We have not taken this decision lightly. We have been working with the province over the past months to ensure that their final application was able to meet the criteria necessary for Canada. That's Carolyn Bennett, the minister in charge there. We spoke in the last half hour to Leslie McBain, co-founder of Mums Stop the Harm. She's amongst many who've been calling for this sort of move. Uh, they would like to have seen a higher threshold, but at least calling for this kind of move. So have many experts in the field, medical field, even as I mentioned, the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs have asked for this, at least a re-examination of drug laws, because they, they say instead of minimizing harm, they're actually having the opposite effect these days. Still, there was criticism today as to be expected. Uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney had this to say. Obviously, this is a slippery slope. And I mean, we've gone from the Prime Minister saying seven months ago that he would not even consider this to legalizing hard drugs in a province of five million people right next door to us. Uh, I don't know why he always insists on doing it. It's not legalizing anything. Uh, that's infuriating because again, it's politics with something where people are dying and I don't hear any solutions from Jason Kenney on this either. Anyway, Joining me now, who, someone who knows a lot more about this than I do, Benjamin Perrin. Ben Perrin is a professor at the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. He was once the lead justice and public safety advisor to uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper from 2012 uh, to 2013. He knows, obviously knows Jason Kenney as well, uh, and author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. Ben, thanks so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me. I just your reaction to the announcement. I don't think a lot of us saw we saw important announcement. Didn't know what to make of it. There have been many over the years. This one felt different. Yeah, I mean, I think the timing of it uh, is pretty obvious. Um, I two hours before it was announced, uh, correctly guessed what was going to be approved. Uh, it didn't take a lot, but the reason I'm, I was so sure of what was coming is that actually there's a big vote tomorrow in the House of Commons that the. Uh, government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is trying to basically overshadow. So there's a bill uh, before the House of Commons, Bill C-216, that MPs will vote on tomorrow um, that would decriminalize uh, simple possession in throughout the entire country. 
And that's something that has been called for by the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, countless public health officials, uh, you, know, you name it, um, survivors, I should say, as well, uh, importantly, people who use drugs. And uh, the Liberal government has decided instead of um, taking this important step to you know, treat a substance use as a, as a health issue instead of a criminal one, it's chosen instead to uh, very narrowly try to do some sort of quasi-decriminalization in, in our province only. And I think it's a real... Um, it's it's really disappointing in that regard. Um, but by the same token, it is a big uh, a big step in the right direction. Yeah, I, I won't accuse only Jason Kenney of playing politics with this. Uh, we know that everyone does uh, to that extent, which is again always a shame. Uh, but but it was. I mean, the threshold's been talked about a bit. But why do you think this decriminalization is the right move? Because I know you've you thought about this differently, uh, maybe a, you know a decade ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. I, I know Jason Kenney. I know Pierre Polyev. Uh, they are currently spouting the same uh, ideological conservative uh, rhetoric from the 1980s and the 2006, you know, Harper version of the war on drugs. And, you know, I used to work in that government. I, uh, you know, drank the same Kool-Aid they did. Uh, I've gotten out of Ottawa now over a decade out of being out of Ottawa. And I did a couple of things. One is I started talking to people, people who actually use substances. I talked to family members who had lost loved ones. And I read the research. And all of them pointed in the same direction, that by treating someone who is struggling with an addiction as a criminal, that you only make things worse. And it's, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking for me to, to see the, the political moves that are being played um, with with you know, people who are, who are struggling. We, we know that many people who, uh, who are addicted to various substances are, are self-medicating pain in their lives. You know, one of the major contributors to a substance use disorder is, is childhood trauma. I, I'm, I'm doing a study right now where you know, I'm hearing folks who spent time in prison and most of them uh, we know have substance use disorders. And I'm hearing people starting to use, you know, so-called hard drugs as early as 11, 12, 13. And, and those aren't anomalies. That's the kind of average age I'm hearing. So we've got to really look differently at this issue as a society. And it's um, many people have done that. Many people like the police chiefs have changed their views. I've changed my views. And uh, I really hope that we can continue to move this forward more quickly. We just don't have a lot of time to wait, given that we're in the middle of this public health emergency. How do you convince people? Because I, I, I understand. I understand why people think this could be a slippery slope. I understand people's knee-jerk reaction to the idea of making something like heroin or cocaine, small, small amounts of, mind you, uh, you know, decriminalizing it is, you know, if you're someone who doesn't believe drugs should be legal, first we had marijuana, now we have this, it may feel like a slippery slope. How, knowing, coming both from your policy background and your professorial background uh, and your conservative background, how do you explain um, or how would you try to convince someone that this is the right move, even if they're every part of their moral fiber thinks it's wrong? Yeah, so that's exactly where I was. You know, that was me. Like all of what you just described, that was me, skeptical of all of these things. Uh, supervised consumption sites, safe supply, uh, decriminalizing drugs. Uh, you know, I like I said, I was the, the front of the front of the, the band, uh, you know, so to speak. And so I tell the story of how I kind of went through that change of heart and mind in my book, overdose, um, for me, uh, it really starts in your heart and then goes to your head. There, the, the evidence is clear for anyone who is willing to read it, that our drug policy is killing people. Um, the evidence is there. Um, but how do we get to the point of being able to hear that? And so I had to um, 
you know, really get to the bottom of this for me. I, I followed all those rabbit holes. So, you know, you mentioned Jason Kenney, uh, Premier of Alberta, a minute ago. One of the things that the Conservatives, and he spouted it off again today, said, well, hey, instead of this, we should crack on, crack down at the border, right, on, on fentanyl, which is fueling the opioid crisis. And a lot of it's coming from China, most of it. We should crack down at the border. And he's still saying that today. Um, we looked into that. Our, you know, I met with the Canada Border Services Agency Enforcement and Intelligence a director for the Pacific region here in Vancouver. They are responsible for screening the mail coming from, uh, from Asia at all enters the Vancouver International Airport. And I asked them for statistics and numbers, and they told me that over a million, a million small packages and letters enter the Vancouver airport from, from the Asia Pacific region every month. And fentanyl, because it is so powerful, it's, we're talking about grains of sand, uh, is enough to overdose. It is being uh, uh, shipped to Canada in greeting cards. So trying to stop a greeting card in a stack of a million greeting cards, good luck. Uh, you know, so, you know, again, I had to do the research. Um, and even if you did, let's imagine you could stop them all. Fentanyl is a synthetic drug. I went online and part of my study was to do this just for fun. Started out for fun. I tried to find a fentanyl recipe. Could I make it at home? I found one within uh, five minutes that I, I thought seemed legitimate, you know, been kind of, kind of up a few areas. So I contacted the U.S. National Security Lab in Livermore, California, contacted a uh, a scientist there, and I sent him the, the uh, recipe I'd found, and I said, hey, could I make fentanyl with this if I had, you know, kind of basic knowledge and, and equipment? He said, uh, and he verified yes. He said, absolutely, this is a bona fide recipe. You would only need college-level chemistry uh, knowledge, and you could legally buy all the precursors. Okay, So we're just playing a ridiculous cat-and-house game of the war on drugs if we're going to keep trying to think we can, you know, threaten and punish people into not using drugs. It doesn't work. We've been doing this for years and wasting billions of dollars on it. I'm speaking with Ben Perrin. He's a professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at UBC. He was the lead justice and public safety advisor for Prime Minister Stephen Harper a decade ago. And he's author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. We're discussing uh, the federal government today uh, announcing alongside BC uh, an exemption for the British Columbia, allowing the province to decriminalize possession of small amounts of so-called hard drugs. Uh, certainly something that experts have been calling for for a very long time uh, to at least try to find a way to stem the sheer, sheer number of overdose deaths we've been witnessing specifically in this province, but also across the country. Uh, when we come back a bit more just about the decriminalization, what, how it works, uh, will we see it in other parts of the country? And, uh, and, and is the threshold high enough? That's next. This half hour, I'm happy to have Ben Perrin on the show, professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at UBC, author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. We're talking about the federal government today announcing it's going to relax the criminality of illicit drugs to cope with an overdose crisis in BC, eliminating charges for possession of small possession of up to 2.5 grams of illicit drugs for personal use. It begins on January 31st at this point for a three-year period for drug users 18 and over. It will include opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA, also known as to see. Uh, ben, I imagine you'd like to see this across the country at this point. Uh, is this, do you think, uh, as you mentioned earlier, that the Liberals were looking at a vote tomorrow that would have perhaps applied to the whole country. Uh, will this be expanded, do you think? Or should it be? I think it has to. Um, I, I've never, I've taught criminal law since 2007. I can tell you there's not a single other uh, offense that we have in our criminal law in Canada where uh, cities, provinces, uh, territories have to apply for the law to uh, apply or not there. I mean, is this like a buffet choice? You kind of pick and choose. I mean, it's 
if it weren't people's lives, it would almost be laughable. Um, it, it's clearly politics. The fact that Health Canada has approved a province-wide exemption for BC means that they've concluded that it is a medically necessary step to decriminalize uh, simple possession in BC. I, I, you can't prove that that doesn't exist, uh, you know, as you cro- that falls apart as you cross the, you know, BC-Alberta or BC-Yukon border. Um, I ran the numbers this morning, and um, 73% of people who died of illicit drug overdose uh, in Canada were outside of BC. So three out of every four uh, people in Canada who are dying are not in our province. And this does absolutely nothing for them. And uh, what it does is it continues to say that the you know, 27,000 Canadians who have died from overdose deaths since 2016, that they're criminals. That's what the law says. It says they're criminals and they deserve to be punished. And I think that's wrong. And, and the majority of Canadians think that's wrong, according to recent polling data. And so it's, it is, it's disgusting to me that we are still having this conversation, quite honestly. Um, we should have listened to the warning signs uh, decades and even, you know, at least years ago when the skyrocketing death rates began. We, this is an old news story, and yet more people have died of overdose deaths this year than at any point in Canadian history. I mean, it is just getting worse. You can see it. You can see it where we are. I mean, I'm, on, I'm in Victoria. It's not as bad as Vancouver, but it's still, I mean, you see it all the time. And as you mentioned, it's across the country now. It's across North America. No. I, you know, I, when I wrote my book, I didn't know anyone who had passed away. A lot of people thought, oh, you know, you must have changed your mind because like someone you know died or something. And that wasn't it at all. But since I published this book, I know two people who have passed away. And, and I went to one of their memorial services. And it was, it was devastating to see the impact and to think about the, the life of this young Indigenous man who helped my family out when we needed help. We had bought a, a home you know, when he was, he worked in construction, like so many young men do who, who have died of this epidemic. And um, like many people in Vancouver, young families, we spent way too much money on a mortgage. We couldn't afford the house. We needed to rent out a basement suite, but it was a dump. And he came in and uh, got it there early mornings and stayed late at nights and helped us get it to a really beautiful little home in the basement. And um, he even let me swing a hammer alongside him, even though I work in an <laughs> office, you know, and um I met his, his daughter, and he was a, a wonderful, caring, kind man. And I, I, I just think it's so sad that throughout all that time, the message he got from society and from many people and the law was that he was a bad person for doing that and that he deserved to go to jail and that it's something he needed to hide instead of get help for and get support. And it's, it's, it's too late to save those people who've passed away, but it's not too late to help others who are still... Um, hiding in their addiction and that secrecy is what kills people literally kills them Uh, using alone is the single greatest uh, risk factor and when you make something illegal you drive it underground certainly with fentanyl we know that to be true we know and and people think of you know sort of street use and so on but we know that a lot of what's happened in bc i mean i know bc particularly well is you know uh, just like just like the, the gentleman you're describing using on their own out of shame mostly um and then not having anyone around to save them when it goes wrong no one in that's when true, that's it. happens yeah yeah you know i've you know i've 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 had fentanyl it was in a medical setting it wasn't street drugs right if you've gone through a medical procedure in the last you know 10 years you've probably had it too and it's safe there because you know it's precisely titrated you know what the contents are with street drugs roll the dice 
and there's someone there to monitor you and help you if you you know have too much. But those two factors are missing. Either both of those factors with street drugs, people using alone, they're at a substantial risk of overdosing and and eventually dying. And so, you know, what's the whole point of government? It's supposed to protect people's lives and not just the jobs of politicians. And I know this is a big change for people. I mean, I was raised in the 80s, like, you know, dare and don't use drugs and all that. And, you know, I, I do believe that these that substances are, are not great and they're harmful, but I also understand that people use them. And the reasons they use them are varied. And it often relates to things like early childhood trauma. Uh, that's a significant risk factor for people to use substances. It's also got a genetic component. And yet we're using the criminal law to, to punish people for that. And so I think people are, history is going to look back very hardly on, on, on our society and, and globally for taking this cruel and uh, heartless approach to, to a health issue. I still have a couple of minutes here, Ben. It'll still be a tough sell, though. I mean, I know so many people who, who just don't think that that it's right to legalize stuff like cocaine. Yeah, you know, sure. It's, it's, a, it's a big change. It is a big change. And, and I think it needs to be messaged in a way and, and explained in a way that makes people feel comfortable with it. I'm not sure we've done that yet. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think there's a lot of public education needed. Um, a couple of things I would say about that is, you know, number one, um, you know, we want to keep people alive. Right. If someone uh, uses alone in the overdose, um, they're at higher risk of, of dying. If we want people to have a chance at getting into treatment and recovery, we need to provide them with uh, safe drugs instead of the toxic street drugs, a safe supply. That's another part of this uh, puzzle. And by um, threatening people with jail, that does not work. Um, so if we want to give people the best chance who are addicted to these substances of having a having a. Um, uh, health and 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 life and being able to be you know part of our society still we've got to do that and the other thing is you just don't know um i have talked to so many people i encourage people to go online and hear some of the stories um you know go on the moms stop the harm website that's a group of of family members and they you can hear and listen to them listen to them tell you about their children these they look like just like you're in my own kids um and and they often, in many cases, did not even know their kids were using. I, I've talked to people who were senior government officials, even working in the health sector. Mm-hmm. And one morning they went in to wake up their daughter. It's a true story. Mm-hmm. And she was dead in her room. And they had no idea that she was a long-term uh, substance user. So we've got to open our hearts. We've got to open our minds. And we've got to be willing to admit that when the body count continues to rise, that what we're doing is not working. Right. We, we cannot ben continue Perrin. to go down this road. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight, Ben. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much.